We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Eleanor Mills, who's a journalist and the founder of Noon, an organization which aims to inspire women in their second act. She was chair of Women in Journalism between 2014 and 21, and the editor of the Sunday Times magazine. But none of this prepared her for a personal crisis last year. More about this in a moment. I've invited her onto my podcast for three reasons. Personally, I have a lot of female clients in their 40s and 50s who are talented. I think they have a lot to offer, but they have lost their confidence. And I hope this conversation will make them feel a little less alone. Secondly, I was inspired by Eleanor's decision to be the change you want to see. And thirdly, I believe everybody, both men and women, can benefit from reinventing themselves at midlife. So welcome to the podcast, Eleanor. So last year you had a crisis. Can you sort of walk me through it? What happened? Oh, yes. So a crisis. Hello, everybody. I'm Eleanor. So yes, I had been working for the Sunday Times for 23 years. So I turned 50 last year and I joined the Sunday Times when I was 27. And I've been with my husband for longer than that, but pretty well everything else in my life had changed in that intervening period. So I'd had two children. I, you know, went in there a young person as a bit of a kind of a wunderkinder and I came out at 50. So it was a massive change. I think when you've worked for somewhere for so long, it becomes such a part of your identity. And also I was the editorial director there and the editor of the Sunday Times magazine. And I'd been a columnist and I'd won lots of prizes. And, you know, it was very much kind of part of who I was. And then there were changes at the newspaper and everyone has to leave eventually. And I was out. And that was a big shock to the system. It was a real kind of existential shock. And a lot of my friends were like, well, you know, don't be ridiculous. Most of us have changed jobs like, you know, 10 times in the time that you've been doing that one. And I always knew, I always felt about my journalistic career that I caught a wave. I felt I caught this wave when I was really young and I'd ridden it and ridden it and ridden it and ridden it and it had taken me further and further and further and further. And I always knew that at some point, you know, everyone falls off the wave in the end, it runs out and you get into the white water. And that was really what happened to me last year. So I had to do a massive re-evaluation of everything because it was a bit like when you're in that kind of a job, you have a big cloak of power. I felt a bit like I had this kind of Game of Thrones, huge black cloak. I really could feel it. It was heavy and kind of furry and it had big gold bits on it. And you kind of wear this thing as a kind of bad status. And then when you take it off, it's a really good feeling. You feel a bit like you're the kind of alien underneath or like the person who's underneath Darth Vader when when the mask comes up. You kind of don't really know who you are anymore. And what I discovered was both it was quite scary to take it off, but also now a year on, I feel wonderfully free that actually that big heavy cloak, although it seemed to be a kind of great bit of armour, was actually quite constricting. And it came with a lot of baggage and a lot of things that you had to do, which are not necessarily who now me as a slightly, you know, rawer, definitely more vulnerable, more open person. I'm quite glad I don't have to wear that cloak anymore. But losing it was really tough. And it was interesting. You said I arrived as a wonder kid that there's almost an image 
for somebody who gets a job like that in their late 20s. And then you said, and I landed on the shore at sort of 50, and there was a pause because you didn't actually quite have a word to describe yourself as a, a woman of 50 leaving that job. Well, I don't think there is one. I mean, there were a whole kind of host of redundancy levels of women in the pandemic have been very high, particularly older women. And there'd been a doubling in the rate of unemployment of the over 50. So I wrote a piece for The Telegraph about kind of what it feels like to find yourself in that space. Part of the reason I've set up this new venture called Noon, which is a platform to empower women in midlife, is because there was nothing. I mean, I'm a journalist like you. And I kind of came out and I remember kind of Googling around, you know, redundancy or what I wanted was a really kind of meaty read about how it felt to have done a job for so long and to have your identity so tied up to it and then suddenly be kind of out in the cold. And I wanted some felt a bit like Hampton and Gretel in the woods. I wanted some crumbs or some pebbles which would show me the way out of the dark forest. And I love stories. So I was looking for somebody's story who'd been there who could kind of be like a beacon of light for me along the way. And I just couldn't find anything. And I'm good at finding stuff online. And there was just nothing like that. So I'm a great believer, you know, in the Obama thing that you need to be the change you want to see. And so I decided that I would set something up so that other people, and actually I was a bit ahead of the curve because I left the Sunday Times just at the beginning of lockdown. And since then, I think a lot of people have been thrown into that sense of transformation and reinvention and having to kind of rethink their lives. So I just suddenly decided that was what I wanted to do. And the second thing that happened at the same time, which I think is equally a universal experience, was that your children are in the process of getting ready to go off to university as well. And that's a huge change. We were just discussing that as I came on. My uh, daughter was buying a rose for her English teacher. He'd helped her get into university. So yes, it was a real cocktail of change, I think. So there was that leaving the Sunday Times after so long. My children are 18 and 16 doing their levels in GCSEs this year and very much kind of growing up and about to go, my eldest is going to go off to university in the autumn. So I was looking down the barrel of that. And I also got COVID. And actually, that was a really big deal. I, I mean, I didn't go to hospital or anything, but I felt very unwell. I had a really high fever. And I think it was probably the first time in 25 years that I had nothing to do. I lay in bed, sweating with the COVID, feeling dreadful. And it was just such a weird feeling. It felt like being in free fall. It felt like all the scaffolding, all the kind of normal building blocks in my life had been taken away. And the lockdown, I think, made lots of people feel like that. But it really exacerbated for me by these other kind of destabilizing factors. And I think what I did was I really went back to source. I kind of went back to kind of essence. I remember Chris Evans saying to me, when we were out in Cannes, actually, a couple of years ago doing something. That That's when a good name had... to drop, isn't it? Oh, sorry, I apologise. When the I was out at Cannes. Cannes. When I was in Cannes with Chris Evans, you know, my life was quite fabulous. But that's the thing about being a journalist. Jobs like being the editor of the Sunday Times magazine gets you trips to Cannes. It gets you sitting next to Chris Evans and then suddenly all that's gone. So although you sort of casually throw it in, I think that just shows what's the life that you were like, you know, and how powerful that cloak was. Well, I think yes and no on that. So the point I was going to make about Chris Evans, actually, is that he's quite unlike a lot of those people because he really knows what it's like to fall from a very high height and be right down in the doldrums when he was chucked out of Virgin Media. And he had a really, really dark night of the soul. And I remember him talking to me about that and saying that what had saved him was a book called The Power of Now by Urquhart Toller. And when I was ill, I was lying in bed and I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I felt very panicky because I had such a high fever. And I started listening to Eckhart Tolle on audiobook. And his voice was very sonorous and calming. 
almost boring, which is actually just what I needed in that state. And for days, I lay in a kind of liminal place, listening to you know the power of now, which is all about getting rid of ego, being in the moment, trying to connect with something larger than yourself. And I did feel like I'd been really kind of stripped down and had been forced to slow down. I mean, I'm someone who's used to doing 100 things at once. And so I think that that was really important. And it made me really think about what I wanted to do next and maybe think about what I'd done in my journalistic career that had really made me happy. And actually, I loved being chair of women in journalism because I was able to kind of mentor and bring on and help so many younger journalists within the industry. And the bits of journalism that I really loved was when we did campaigns which really changed things. We did a campaign on the Sunday Times magazine where we raised £300,000 in a week for some of the poorest, most deprived kids in the UK on the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham. And I'd gone up there and I'd met the headmistress and I could see that we could try and raise some money so these kids would have a nicer summer holiday. And I wrote an editorial. And I remember it was one of the best experiences of my life. I came down to breakfast and we'd already raised £5,000. And by the evening, it was over £100,000. And then by Thursday, it was like £350,000. And I knew that money was going to be completely life-changing to these kids. These are kids who hadn't ridden a bicycle. They'd never been camping. And we gave them this incredible summer where they got to do all these things they'd never done before. And that wouldn't have happened without the Sunday Times magazine and all the readers' support. And I felt really proud of that. And then we did the same thing for poor kids at Christmas, Britain's most deprived children. We raised a lot of money for them. I realized that the things that made me most happy, made me feel most satisfied was when I really felt like I'd made a difference. And that was the kind of circle that I wanted to try and put myself in for the next kind of 20 years or whatever of working life that I had. So that was very much the essence of being the change that I wanted to see around giving people a path through the dark wood and trying to do something that would be helpful. So I'm hearing three important things. One is getting rid of ego, living in the now, and actually thinking about what brings bliss into your life. Three really, really key things. Tell me what you mean by death of ego. So death of ego, what I think I mean is there are lots of things that we do which look kind of glamorous on the outside, things like you know going to Cannes with Chris Evans. The thing is, when you're a journalist at the top level, like I was for a very long time, you do so many of those things that actually they stop being kind of special or fun. It's just kind of part of your job. And actually, what was special about Chris Evans is that he's somebody who's a really interesting, clever, kind of real person. He has heart. So I was interested in what he had to say, not because he was famous, but because I actually think he's a really interesting kind of proper person. So if we're talking about kind of death of ego, actually, Chris Evans does have an ego, but he's also kind of got beyond his ego. And I think it's a question of asking yourself kind of what it's all for. I mean, I come from a family of real like overachievers. And I think that our family currency has always been a kind of external achievement and that that was the kind of currency that mattered. So suddenly that bit of your achievements taken away from you, I think you're really forced to think about what are your drivers? You know, by the time you get to 50, are you still kind of trying to do all these things because that was kind of what your parents valued? And I think it's important to kind of strip that away and go, well, actually, you know, sod that. What actually makes me happy? You know, who am I? I went into this very high profile, high stakes career when I was very young. I've done it for a really long time. How much of that kind of external validation and success does anyone need? You know, when is that enough? When are you allowed to go, well, actually, you know, I've got the T-shirt there. I you know, really had a very stellar career in journalism. I mean, do you need to recreate that or can you do something else? And I was very clear that I didn't want to go back into journalism, that I'd had this amazing ride and that I didn't want to do that anymore. 
And so I think when we talk about the kind of death of the ego, it's more trying to work out really what makes you happy. I mean, my friends will laugh, but I'm big on joy. You know, one of the things that I'm really excited about with Noon is nobody, I think, says to women in midlife, you deserve all the good stuff. You deserve joy, happiness, those golden moments when you sit with friends and maybe the sun's going down and it's beautiful and the music's playing and that's the place, the time, that is a golden moment. And I want women in midlife to have lots of those and to feel that they deserve them. And I think in the last year, I've had a much greater sense of the kind of beauty around me. I've been able to kind of slow down. I love looking at the blossom. I swim in the ladies pond on Hampstead Heath. I know I'm sorry, I'm such a cliche. Every day in the cold water. And I've just tried to do the things that really make me happy, spend time with the people that I really love. It's been great having more time with my kids and my husband and having time to speak on the phone for a long time to really old girlfriends. And I felt so blessed and lucky to have this community of people around me. I felt very loved in the last year. And I kind of wanted to make sure that anyone else who was having a really nasty time could find that love and support in the noon community. That was really, so it's about joy and about love and support and about community and about making a map of with the later part of women's lives for others to follow. Because I don't think there is much of a map at the moment. The patriarchy values women for their pulchritude and their fecundity. Oh, those are two good words. And when you hit 50, you know, those two things in that kind of wider culture, you kind of don't have anymore. And therefore, the patriarchy doesn't really have a script for you anymore. So I think it's up to us. It's like the last frontier of feminism for me to map and make useful and feel enriched and satisfied by this kind of period that we can invent for ourselves, you know, and I think it's a real opportunity to go back to the dreams that we had when we were younger, which maybe got pushed off track by child rearing or having a job or career or earn some money. So one of the things I did last year in lockdown is I've written the first draft of a novel. I've wanted to write a novel since I was a teenager. So I just feel it's kind of, it's a point where you could shed a certain kind of manic busyness and maybe an earlier drive for status and the kind of external validation and actually start really doing and engaging things that personally bring you joy. And that that's okay, that there comes a point in women's lives where maybe you don't have to be pleasing everybody else all the time. You can actually really think about what you want. And I've spoken to so many women who feel at this point that they're kind of sleepwalking through their own lives. One woman said to me, I haven't chosen any of this. You know, I feel like I don't particularly like my husband, my children drive me crazy. I'm not living where I want to be. I'm doing a job I hate. How did I end up here? So I think in some ways at midlife, that kind of set of changes and at noon, we have seven pillars of noon that we try and help people with, which are these pinch points that people hit at midlife, divorce, bereavement, redundancy, emptiness, elderly parents, a lack of purpose, maybe this sense of feeling invisible and a bit lost. And I want to say to women, come on, you know, that's not the case. You know, without the queen, we're probably only halfway through. That's why I called it noon, because I think it's the middle of the day. And that there's so much more to come. And that if we help people through those difficult challenges, and the American research shows that unhappiness peaks at 47. And once you get through those kind of really difficult bits, things get a lot better. I just commissioned a piece actually this week from an older woman who's 70 saying, yeah, I look back to my 40s and early 50s and it was really hellish. It was really tough, but I've had such a wonderful time since then. And that's what we're trying to say, that there's so much more to come. Yeah, I'm 62, and I would say that's much easier than 42. I also lost a big job. I was younger than you. I was in my late 30s. And there was a moment when I managed to sort myself out sort of financially. So, you know, I wasn't worried about losing the house. And I was thinking, I've got this time. What is it that I really want to do? And I think that is a really important question. 
And people stop themselves from asking that question because the answer can sometimes be, as far as they're concerned, impractical. So I think women at 50 are particularly good at finding reasons why things are impractical. So how do they fight against that? Well, I just think if you don't ask yourself the question to begin with, then you're never going to find the answer. So I think it's kind of being brave enough to actually stop and take stock and think, okay, I have an opportunity here. And I think for me, because it was kind of enforced change, I think in some ways that's easy. It's a bit like a death or a divorce or something that kind of happens to you. There's a before and an after and you've got to kind of keep going. You're going to have to go in a new direction. I have huge admiration and respect for people who are actually kind of bumbling along okay and make a radical step, whether that's leaving a marriage or leaving a job and really kind of striking out on their own. I think that takes huge courage. But I think what I would like is for women coming up behind us to think, okay, when I get to about 50, I'm going to have my noon time. I'm going to have this point where everything that kind of has been off the table is kind of on the table again, because maybe your kids leave home or you've got a bit more space in your life. You've got a chance to do it. And just for them to think about what that might look like for them when they get there. I was speaking to a lovely woman yesterday called Rachel Carew, who has become a kind of lingerie and swimwear model in her 50s. Having never done any modelling before, um, she kind of brought up three children and one of them was quite ill. And she just writes about hitting 40 and thinking, I've got to do something for myself. You know, who am I in all of this? And I think that women do kind of lose sight of themselves in looking after everybody else, particularly if you're kind of trying to do a family and a job. There's just so little time for any of your own thoughts or really deep feelings. So it's really just a plea to say, you know, you're halfway through your life. You probably had more time already on this earth than you've got left. So really make that last remaining time count. You know, what do you want your time here to have achieved? My mum used to say to me, darling, the graveyards are full of irreplaceable journalists, politicians, CEOs. And she was right, you know, when I would be kind of going, I must do this, I must do that. And of course, the only people you're really irreplaceable to are your family and your friends. So I just think that our society sells us a whole load of rubbish, which doesn't actually make us happy. And often it's only when you've kind of got all those things, which is supposed to make you happy and you realise that actually they're a bit empty, that maybe then you can go, well, actually, I've ticked all those boxes. So what? This is the thing. You know, for me, a cold swim in the ladies' pond, looking at the blossom on the trees, meditating every morning, hanging out with my daughter, chatting about Thomas Hardy's women over breakfast. You know, those are the things that make me happy. Did you feel a bit guilty because as a colour magazine person, you're one of the people that's selling all the tat that we're supposed to go for? I think actually as an editor, I've always tried to kind of take a bit of a different line. I mean, I didn't edit the style section. The Sunday Times magazine's always done kind of investigations and slightly more meaty stuff. I've never really been the kind of journalist that's been flogging consumer stuff. That's never been my bag. I've always been interested in ideas and zeitgeist and what made people tick and what they were thinking about. In some ways, what I'm doing now with Noon, which is getting together really kind of stories of transformation and people's accounts of how they changed or how they went from somewhere where they weren't very happy to somewhere much happier and putting together all these kind of maps of what that might look like. And also, I think when we're talking about the things that women talk about between themselves or maybe on a private WhatsApp group or on a DM, but which don't usually see the light. So we've got a piece about a woman who was divorced and went to a sex club and talks about actually being able to ask for what she really wanted, which she'd never done before. So we have, you know, lots of sex, lots of joy, lots of the kind of things which a lot of people go, oh God, I don't want to think about middle-aged women doing that. But of course, there's no reason why we shouldn't be. When you were coming out of your COVID depression, 
I don't think I was depressed. I think I was sad. And I was in a transitional, I've used the word liminal before, that kind of feeling on the lintel between one life and another. And I think that no change or transformation can happen without sadness. I think you have to mourn the things that have gone. I think it's a bit like pruning. I'm not a very good gardener, but I felt a bit like a big kind of rambling shrub, which had tendrils all over the place and which had been absolutely stripped back to its essence, back to the green sap and like kind of repotted to give it a chance to flourish again. And that was a painful process. I mean, I'm not going to say that was all joyous. I did a lot of weeping. My children got to the point where they were like, oh God, mum, are you crying again? And one of your friends on a walk said, you know, how are you? Were you able to tell them that you weren't coping? Because, you know, you come across as a very strong, confident person. And I'm just wondering whether it was difficult to actually say, I'm in a bad place. I need help rather than being the person that's raising £300,000 for other people. I need help myself. Was that something that was quite difficult and actually against a little bit of your self-image? Yeah, it was horrible, Angie. I hated it. Everything in my life has been about projecting front. It's funny, I had a conversation on Facebook about exactly this with an old friend who I was at Westminster with, who probably had the most front of any boy I'd ever met. And we were talking about kind of dropping that guard and he was saying that he'd had to do it too. No, it was really, really hard for me. My friend said, are you all right? And I burst into tears and I was like, actually, I'm so not right. I feel awful sad, miserable, hopeless, like it's not going to get better. And just admitting that was a huge relief. It's like the damn burst. It was very funny. We were sitting on the corner from my house in Kentishtown. It was about midday on a Monday, drinking pims out of a tin like a pair of <laughs> trams. <laughs> but it was actually a really good moment because I think there's such a kind of like, oh yeah, no, it's fine and I'm doing this and da da da. But actually I found that being able to be vulnerable to say, actually, I'm really not okay and I don't really know how to deal with this because it's not really me was actually very freeing. And I also found that people were very kind. And I think sometimes it's easier to be friends with someone if they're in a bit of a low state, because you feel very kind of needed. And I think particularly, because I usually am quite confident, and I'm quite well defended, and I can be quite kind of feisty. To have me kind of pathetic and weepy and needy was quite a surprise to quite a lot of people. And they were actually really sweet to me. I kind of discovered that there's a real strength and vulnerability. And then I was very reluctant to write about it. I mean, it was a really horrible thing to kind of admit. I talked to my friend Decca Aitkenhead, whose husband died, and she wrote an amazing memoir about losing him and how awful she felt. Mm. And just before I wrote this very raw piece, which I did for The Telegraph, about what it was like to kind of feel like you're on the scrap heap at 50, I said, I've written this thing. And she said, darling, it's like running outside kind of wearing no knickers. But what you have to remember, and it feels really, really makes you feel very vulnerable. But she said, what you have to remember is if you go out and you do that, everyone will come to you. That Actually, everybody feels like that. And by sharing something which is very true, you massively touch a nerve. And she was completely right, because I don't think anything I've ever written has had such an effect. I had thousands of emails and people getting in touch on LinkedIn saying, thank you for expressing how I feel. I felt so shamed that this is how I felt. I felt so washed up. I felt like I was never going to amount to anything again. And I think the sharing of the vulnerability, but also an optimism that you can come from that point and that things will get better has been, I think, one of the most powerful things we've done on Noon. And actually, the very first interview I did on IGTV, I mean, I've had to learn all sorts of weird things. I've never done an IGTV live before. It's an Instagram live and all these kind of weird bits of social media. But I did an interview with Raina Wynn, who wrote that book, Salt Path 
which is, I think, maybe the redemptive tale of Midlight. Her husband was diagnosed with a terminal illness. They lost their house because of some awful legal thing. They were homeless. They had absolutely nowhere to go. And they set off to walk the Southwest Coast Pass and they walked all the way around Cornwall. And the physical activity made him much better. And just being in the moment and being in nature and seeing the sea every day, they kind of healed themselves. And by the time they got to the end of the path, they kind of had a plan. A friend had lent them a house. Then she wrote this book about it, which has become a huge bestseller. And so there was something redemptive in deciding to walk and not just giving up and going to live in a council flat, but to go on this adventure. I love that. I love that sense of you can have some agency by immersing yourself in a project, even if it's just a walk, you can reinvent yourself. And I think we're all going to live for a long time. So that process of reinvention and what that really feels like, how sad it is, how vulnerable you feel, how you have to strip yourself back and chop off bits that you found very precious and show things that maybe you hadn't revealed before. All of that is a strengthening process, actually, and that you come out of that feeling renewed and restored and having found maybe a new tribe of people. I really feel like that and some new beliefs and some new things and actually feeling happier and excited. I mean, every day now I do about 10 things I've never done before. And it makes me feel that actually I was getting very stale while I was at the Sunday Times. I've been doing it for too long. I think you've come up with a really useful word that I think is actually underused, and that's tribe. I Mm. think we need a tribe. And my definition of tribe are sort of like-minded people. They don't necessarily all have to be the same age as you, but they need to have a similar sort of outlook, which is probably that they're on some kind of personal development journey, for example. I think in Britain, we're very anti that. And that feels very American, doesn't it? And and actually, I've done some things over the last year that I'm sure that my old self would just be sitting there kind of head in hands going, you're doing what? I've been doing a meditation circle every Monday with a whole load of people that I've never met where we all kind of meditate, led by an amazing guy called Jarvis Smith, who runs something spirited business. So it's about if you're running a purpose-led enterprise, which all of us are, how do you translate that kind of purpose? And that's like kind of spiritual kind of sense or that or that kind of sense that you really are trying to make a difference. And this is coming from a good place. So it's a whole load of us, about 12 entrepreneurs who are all in this trying to do something similar. Lots of them are doing sustainable things. And we all kind of come together and we meditate and we've been doing it all on a Zoom group. And actually, these people have become incredibly important to me. We exchange kind of emails offline. We send each other books. We're very much on a similar kind of path. And I mean, this thing about a tribe, I think is really important. I think there's a real process in terms of transformation, which we don't really talk about. So I think there's an initial period, which is this horrible kind of shock and sadness and a mourning for what's gone. Then there's this sense of stripping back. What is your purpose? What do you really want to do? Kind of who are you? Then there's a bit of what we've got. What are the things that you could push into this, whatever it is you're going to do? For me, that was an incredible network of contacts and fellow travellers and people who had written for me over the years and where we had real shared aims and beliefs around things. So I put those together into my advisory board for me. And then, you know, what are you good at? I'm good at commissioning articles that people want to read. And selling an idea and kind of communicating. So you suddenly you kind of put all those things together and you realise that actually you can make something new out of that, that all those skills that you had in your last gig haven't vanished just because you, you don't have the cloak anymore. The reason why you could wear the cloak was because you could do all these things and you don't stop being able to do them just because the cloak's gone. And I think that that's the horrible bit to begin with, is that because the cloak is gone, you feel like all your powers have gone too. It's like, you're a sorcerer and all the powers have gone away. Or Samson, you've had all your hair cut off. Actually, all your powers are still there. They're just not wrapped up in the cloak. 
So it's just kind of unteasing that for yourself. I heard a word that probably the you of the past wouldn't actually have used, which was spiritual. Am I right? Oh, yeah, about no, no, that? exactly. I would, yeah, I've never been a spiritual. You would have had your before. tongue cut off before you'd mentioned that word. Well, particularly as a news international executive, I'd say. Yes. <laughs> I think I've become quite a spiritual person in the last year. I meditate every day. I have a really strong sense that there is a bigger kind of energy and force in the universe than is obvious to us every day, particularly when we're running around. And when I'm still and I kind of really think about pulling energy down from the sky and up from the ground, I can feel it. I can see it, you know, kind of in light in my head. And I feel very comforted by that. It's not a religious thing, but it's just a sense of a connection to something bigger than your than yourself. And also feeling a great sense of kind of joy and gratitude for being in the beautiful world when it's beautiful. And my dad always used to say something. He always used to say, it's very important to know when you're having a good time, because you certainly know when you're having a bad time, <laughs> which is kind of silly, but really true. You know, that often we don't stop to say, wow, isn't it a beautiful day? Or aren't I lucky? Or this is a fantastic kind of golden moment. And I think that we should do that more. And I've kind of learned to be more appreciative of the kind of smaller things in life over the last year. And I think this is one of the good things about tribe, because one, it brings people into your life who use words like spiritual and bringing energy down from the sky and bringing up from the ground. I mean, I recognise all of this because I've been on a similar journey as well. And Mm. I mean, you feel terribly uncomfortable the first time somebody says, you know, bring the energy up from the floor. But, you know, actually, there is something in it. and. It's important, and perhaps this is another idea, I think, for people at this stage, is you just have to be open. See what that meditation group brings, you know. I mean, this is probably because we're both at heart journalists. Cynical journalists. Cynical cynical journalists. Take the monkey off your shoulder, which is going, really? (laughs) You're going to do what? You're going to kind of, you know, imagine yourself in a perfect grotto with like 10 strangers on a meditation Zoom call. Really? But it's like, yeah, actually it makes me feel a lot better. So, you know, why not? And then, you know, some of it isn't going to be for you and some of it is. I love your image of the cynical monkey off your shoulder. You're never going to actually get in that Zoom call in the first place. No, and I found, I remember my mum after my stepfather died saying that she felt so wretched that she just said yes to everything because she kind of didn't want to do anything. So she just thought she'd just say yes to lots of different kinds of experiences. And I think I've kind of done quite a lot of that. But I've, I've kind of tried to put myself, I mean, it's been difficult because it's been lockdown. If it hadn't been lockdown, I would definitely be dressing off all over the world. But I've tried to kind of put myself in places or have experiences that I wouldn't have done before. And that has been, I think that's been, it's been really interesting. I mean, I think that part of being a journalist is that we like, we like the new. I think we're all kind of slightly experienced junkies. It's been fascinating because I've just done so many things that I hadn't done before in the last year. And this kind of, certainly the kind of, you know, the meditation piece or the kind of voyaging into some of that stuff has been, I mean, I've never really had time to do that before. And I've always been quite cynical about it. And actually, I found it to be very, I want to say feeding. I mean, I think it's quite nurturing of your own kind of space or just being able to kind of sit with yourself and, and that being okay. I think a lot of the busyness that we all indulge in is kind of like a constant race to never actually sit still with yourself and kind of what's inside you and I think that I feel I feel I feel a lot calmer looking at your website there was an idea that I really liked that was that it is really important and I think this is something for women in particular that I see is that they're raised to be good you sort of and this is the the phrase that I picked up off your website <laughs> which was you have to untame yourself so yeah. 
what do you think you mean by going from good to untaming yourself? I think it sounds like a little bit that you might have been on the, that journey too, actually. I think I've always been quite untamed. Have you been good too? I'm sure. You don't survive as an executive without being good. Well, I think you have to be both good and have a bit of rat-like cunning, you know, to, to, <laughs> to be a good executive. You have to know how to stay inside the lines, but, you know, but play the game quite ruthlessly. But that's different from untaming yourself, isn't it? Yes, you definitely can untame yourself. I found that I found a different kind of a voice. And I think that women in our culture are, you know, 2,000 years of patriarchy has trained them to be pleasing, good, amenable, to nice, nice social oil. I mean, I did a lot of social oil in my last job because, you know, kind of filling the silence, making everybody kind of feel that it's all fine, kind of, you know, happy holding the space. But I think I'm probably a bit more bolshy now. I can also say no to things that I don't want to do. I've also been able to speak out on things that I couldn't speak out on before. So I resigned from the Society of Editors earlier this year over the big row. There, there was a whole row about were the newspapers biased in the wake of Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah. And the chairman popped up and said some things which I really didn't agree with. And then I didn't think that the board had condemned what he said enough and will come out with a different kind of a statement. And I was meant to be there as the diversity lead. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I put out the statement saying why I thought that the British press was often biased and that the lack of diversity and representation of different kinds of cultures and different kinds of people meant that it did sometimes act in a kind of biased, bigoted way and that that needed calling out. And that, I was quite frightened when I did it. It was certainly not something I could have done in my old life. And the statement that I wrote explaining why I'd resigned had 500,000 views on LinkedIn. And I had tens of thousands of people of colour from all over the world getting in touch with me saying thank you. I was really humbled and it made me realise for the first time what it must feel like to feel like this whole system is totally rigged against you all the time and that nobody inside it ever admits it. And there was this kind of outpouring of kind of gratitude, which I was really not expecting. That wasn't why I did it. I did it on principle because I just thought that they were wrong and it was out of order and it was against the things I believed in. But it was really kind of humbling to see it from the other side, how much that gesture had meant to people. And what I think, I think both in doing that and in being very honest about how awful I felt after I lost my kind of big status job and went through this transformation, I think that those two moments of Real emotional honesty and outspokenness have really resonated in a way that pretty well, kind of more than anything really I've done in my career till now. And I definitely think that my meditation group, for our giggles about it, helped me find that different kind of voice. I think that women have been taught to, particularly kind of educated, clever ones, have been taught to think in a very male way, to you know use the brain. I think as a in the West, we're, we're taught to kind of almost carry our brains around on a stick. That, that our bodies aren't important. And for me, the last year has been about really being able to kind of feel things, I think, because I was unhappy. And I think because I've allowed myself to kind of feel things and connect the kind of physicality, kind of heart with brain. And that that's, that's really painful. There are a lot of women who talk about this. There's an incredible woman called Claire Dubois, who I've been, become friends with, who runs something called Tree Sisters, who is planting forests all over the world. She'd be a great person for you to talk to, actually. Mm. And she talks about, finding your true voice, your true voice as a woman comes with a lot of pain because you have to reconnect this kind of very male trained Cartesian, I think therefore I am, back into a kind of more physical 
it's a kind of much more Eastern tradition. If you think about yoga, you think about all the different sites of the body where feeling lies. So I think for me, it's been about reconnecting to intellectual kind of firepower with a really kind of truly felt core. And that's where you find who you really are and what your purpose is. And so for me, it's about being fixing that disconnection. And I think also I was always not a particularly obvious Sunday time executive because I was always being more to the left and always feeling slightly like a square peg in a round hole. So now I feel much more whole and wholehearted. And I think that there's a huge power in it. And I would just add that I don't think it does men any harm to untain themselves too, because in a sense, we're just as trapped in all of those hierarchies and worshipping the ladder and thinking, you know, where am I on the ladder and comparing yourself with other people? I mean, it is just pointless because it's an illusion that there are these ladders. Yes, and the ladders are rubbish. I mean, and also however far up the ladder you are, and you know, it's pretty far up the ladder. There's always someone further up the ladder. If you're like a massive kind of tycoon, you have your huge yacht. I went and stayed in an amazing house on the top of San Tropez and we'd watch the billionaire's yachts come in and go out every day. And you know, and even if you're like Bramovich and somebody who's got a bigger yacht, there's always someone further up the ladder. So I think the key is to stop worrying about that and to really accept that who you are is what matters and the kind of strength and the quality of the relationships you have with the people around you. It's a slightly kind of Voltairean ill for cultivating notre jardin. You know, you, you all you can do is kind of work on yourself and the people around you and try and make the world a kinder, kind of, you know, nicer place in your image. If you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help these women who get to this point where I was, where I found that there was nothing. So it's just kind of realising what you can and can't do. Actually, on the idea of saying yes to everything, there's one of my podcasts about somebody who tried 37 different kinds of therapies, which was basically because she said yes to everything. And she reinvented herself by saying yes to everything. No, I think that there's a real power in that. I think it's kind of breaking. I think getting rid of the monkey is a good one that we come up today. And part of that is saying yes to things that your old self wouldn't really get. And in fact, the ones that your old self hate are the ones that you really have to go to. Yes, I think so. Because actually, the reason why your monkey hates them is because it's part of the sort of the shadow bits of yourself that you're not accepting. And generally, it's much better to investigate your shadow than pretend it's not there. So really, when your monkey is saying, no, 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 that's the time when you really have to do say yes. And, you know, we're using this as an example. Join this meditation circle because you're going to meet somebody there that is going to be helpful in some kind of way. You're going to learn something that's going to be helpful in some kind of way. It's not going to be the answer, but it's going to be a piece of the jigsaw. Yes, and I think it might help you find a bit of yourself which has been missing. Certainly, Jarvis helped me really understand the difference between a kind of intellectual knowing and kind of feeling it and how I kind of put those two bits of myself back together. And I would say a spiritual knowing as well, which is almost like a deeper version of a knowing in your body. It's something sort of, I call it the still small voice, but uh, other people call it like a click inside you. But that is important as well. I feel it like a shiver through my body when it's like a kind of a connection to truth. And I now know that I have very physical reaction to that. I can see it now, like I've got kind of goosebumps in my arms. So I think rather than just kind of dismissing that, which I probably would in the past, is is actually kind of when that happens, thinking, okay, that's obviously really made a kind of clunk click connection. That's interesting. You know, what is that about? And trying to be more in that place than yourself. And file that away. 
yes, and not to be kind of embarrassed about it. I mean, I think the world that I grew up in, I went to Westminster and to St. Paul's and then to Oxford and then into the press and the Sunday Times. So that world is all about cynicism. I mean, Westminster was all about you know, being as kind of aloof and as kind of, you know, detached and as cynical as possible. And so I think it, it takes a long time to burn that off. Well, for me, I think I had to dissolve it in a lot of tears. I was going to say you've drowned the monkey in I've the drowned tears. Drowned the monkey, yeah, exactly, in all the in all the salt water. <laughs> I can see it struggling, but it <laughs> went. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of joining our supporters circle is that you can write in to us and myself and one of my witnesses will discuss the issue. And at higher levels, there are all sorts of extra other benefits. In a sense, we're building a tribe of other people who are also on this journey. And here is a letter. I need to perhaps explain it comes from a woman. I have the opportunity to take a great new job with someone that I've worked with before. I know it'll be interesting and challenging and pay well. So what's stopping me? I know it will demand my energy every waking moment and consume all my energy. I'm 35 and my last couple of relationships have come to nothing because I just wasn't around or I would have to cancel and go away at the last moment. It is like I am married to work, which is fine because I have agency, respect and I feel alive until I collapse, crawl under the duvet for a couple of days and reset. In some ways, I quite like the times when I work myself to exhaustion because I can finally switch off. I suspect that if I take this job, I will kiss goodbye to marriage and family, and I'm not certain how I feel about this. One half of me is fed up with my mother asking, when am I going to meet someone nice and settle down? And my grandmother warning, time is slipping through your fingers. But another voice inside is saying, they're right. I need to slow down, find out what I really want. And then this offer comes along and blows everything out of the water. I think this really rather speaks to what we've been talking about, really, as somebody who's coming up to this sort of moment of asking, what is truly important to me? What are your thoughts on this, Eleanor? Well, I think if you're 35 and you haven't really prioritised a partner and kids yet, then maybe that's not actually what you want. And therefore, maybe she should take this job. I mean, we talked quite a lot about the kind of the patriarchy and the kind of learned systems in our chat today. And nearly half of my generation of educated Gen Xers don't have kids. And I think that that's fine. I think it's a very kind of retro view to think that we define women and their happiness in terms of do they have a relationship and some children. And one of the things that we're really trying to explore on Noon is how you can be second and productive and satisfied and complete without having kind of kids in a family and there are women who do that through kind of creativity or through work or and I think it's very important as a society that we can model a different kind of set of choices for women there are lots of men who choose not to have a family or to prioritize their career so I I think in some ways I, I remember having this conversation with a very successful woman who's in her mid 40s and she said I just, you know, I said, have you got kids and stuff? And she said, well, you know, it just, it kind of didn't happen. I always, there were always kind of points where I put up something else ahead of it. And so that to me suggests that that's not actually something that you want that much. I always really wanted to have kids and I had 
my first child when I was 31, second one when I was 33. I met my husband when I was traveling in India when I was 27. So that for me was always something that I really wanted. And if that's really what you want, you you kind of prioritize it. It, it becomes the way that you, the, the prism through which you see your life and how you prioritize things. So I would say to this girl that maybe her heart's not into all of, all of that stuff and she shouldn't feel that she has to do it or do, I mean, I love the thing about the mother and the grandmother. It's that real internalized kind of misogyny of the kind of those very patriarchally kind of twisted women who are saying to her, this is what you need to be, to be fulfilled. And maybe that's not actually the case for her. So that may be not what you expect me to say, but that's really what I think. I have no expectations. I'm always interested to hear what people have to say. I mean, I was thinking of, as I was listening to this, the importance of mentors, Mm. you know, how wonderful it is to have you here talking with your experience, somebody who's known what it's like to be inside an organisation and is older and has had more experience. And so, you know, that mentors are important But I'm also, and it sounds like this person who's offering the job is a bit of a mentor, but sometimes you can have light mentors and you can have dark mentors. Yes. You can definitely have mentors who kind of call you to the dark side of yourself or see a kind of slight relentlessness or kind of fanaticism in you, which is quite useful to them if they're trying to do a project. So I, I think what I would say to this girl is maybe she should go and have a bit of therapy and kind of really work out because the pattern of really kind of working to exhaustion and then collapse suggests to me that that worries me well it suggests maybe that there's something that she's kind of that she's avoiding or that there's some bigger emotional kind of fault line going on where she's kind of numbing herself with work and then kind of you know collapsing and then getting back in so I would be interested to know how kind of happy she really is underneath and I would think I would say to her really where are your sources of joy because it can't just be about work we don't know what kind of work she does I mean if you're a doctor or something like that then maybe there's a kind of bigger passion in there but I I would say no job ever loves you back and so I think for me one of the worst moments was actually when I was given a very kind of generous settlement but somehow that was not that was not commensurate with the kind of energy love passion that I poured into this role for so long I think that's what I mean by no job will ever love you back, that there's a kind of, there's a disconnect. I mean, at the end of the day, if you work for an organisation, you are relying on a spreadsheet and no one's irreplaceable. And at some point you'll get too expensive, although somebody else will come in and be in charge and not like the cut of your face and you'll be chucked out. So I just think that people who who decide that they're going to put everything in their life into their work need to know that at some point that's going to be a bad, that's going to be a bad call. I'm hearing in this work till I collapse, perfectionism and perfectionism is nearly always covering something up why do i have to be perfect because it's probably deep inside i feel that i'm not perfect and i'm yeah very inadequate i think that there's something there's a drive here which is one of the things that i've been exploring in the novel i've been writing over the last year is this sense of the whole this whole that people have inside them and Mm. i think it doesn't matter how successful you are or how much external validation or glorification you get if there's a hole inside you doesn't matter how rich how powerful how successful the hole will never be filled 
by that external kind of validation. The hole is only filled by you really looking into your kind of spiritual hole and doing some work on yourself. And what I would say, because I've also had periods where, you know, I've been married to my work and, you know, it was very central to my identity. And listening to Eleanor and also listening to this letter, I was reflecting back on that period of my life when I was deep inside radio and I literally worked every moment that existed. But actually, sitting here now, I have no regrets about that whatsoever. And I think the reason is, is because actually I learned material that I could take away and use. So I learned how to interview people. Mm. I learned the sort of skills that I'm using today. I learned a huge number of things that I'm actually going to be useful to me forevermore. Yes. And so I think with this job, are you dancing around and sort of fulfilling other people's stuff? Or are you actually getting things out of it that are really good for you? They're skills that you're developing that you can do and use moving forward in the same way that Eleanor has used her ability to commission articles and to network with people and everything else like that, that are actually you know, things that she got out of that job, which were more important ultimately than the money and all those other things. And the wisdom she picked up talking to, for example, Chris Evans, are you learning and growing and getting things that are going to be useful in the long term, or are you just collecting badges? Yeah. So I think that's really wise, Andrew. I really do. And I think that this is why I was saying kind of what's the job that she's doing you know is she, is she a doctor is she kind of you know commissioning amazing books or is there a kind of higher purpose or is she kind of you know a banker who's kind of getting a big check I think it's kind of what kind of work are you doing and I think also you and I have both been massive news junkies and there's something very heady about being absolutely on the the pulse of what's going on in the world you know mm. there were times when I was at the Sunday Times when I was running all our coverage of the American elections or the big breaking story of the day and you know that that was massively exciting so and, and I also think that it's okay to be a woman and love the kind of agency and power that comes with your job to enjoy being person who's being entrusted with those big decisions that have that kind of patronage. I think that that's fine. And, and successful women don't talk enough about the kind of perks of being powerful and how also you can exercise that power to make different kinds of choices or to choose to highlight different kinds of stories or to, to have agency in the world and make it a better place. I've just been judging a big awards thing for campaign magazine this week. And I'm really interested in the people who are met, trying to make advertising a more representative kind of culturally fairer place which is changing the way that we see people represented in the world you know so you can I think it's important to have agency and purpose and to have a sense that you can be doing things and changing things and that we should congratulate women who are doing that. So I've brought you as a witness onto The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, and I think you're beginning to answer this question, what makes your life meaningful? The people that I love and who love me and trying to be as good a kind of human being for them as I can be, which is not always easy, but, you know, trying to be a kind of, you know, good and loving parent, friend, you know, kind of whatever, and that being important. Love is the is the only thing that really gives us meaning. I think joy and I think really understanding, knowing when you're happy, appreciating the kind of beauty kind of around you, scrabbling to try and find something bigger than you in yourself and slowing down and realising 
I, I think this is what we were talking about, about the dissolution of the ego. And finding your higher purpose in some sense. Yes, I think so. Devoting yourself to a bigger cause, which isn't just about your own self embiggerment, as it were, but which is about leaving the world a better place than you found it. Certainly for me, that's really important. So, you know, kind of that and love and joy and fun and laughter. One of the great things I did as a journalist is I interviewed the Dalai Lama. And I remember spending an hour with him where most of the time we just laughed. I'm quite, I'm quite jolly anyway. And he has that kind of like kind of manic, kind of joyful quality. And we just kind of, we kind of laughed. We were in this kind of space of kind of hilarity for the time that I was with him. And I've never forgotten that, that kind of, that, that lightness of being, that, that kind of capacity for joy and that we really underestimate that in our life. So the people in your life who really make you laugh till your sides hurt. And I think the importance of being able to be completely unfiltered, entirely yourself. One of the great joys of the last year has been spending time with people where I don't have to kind of check. I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of check or filter myself at all. My whole spirit can, can talk to theirs and there's nothing that I'm ashamed of or that there's no judgment in that. It's a, like a really true exchange of kind of feelings and thoughts and, and of, of a kind of really kind of profound human exchange. And trying to be kind of, you know, grateful and joyous about something every day. And I do envy you swimming in the ponds at uh, Hampstead Heath every day. Sometimes it's cold, <laughs> but it's good. You know, it's, it's, it's that thing of jolting you into the moment. You know, you can't be thinking about anything else. I've been in the men's pond, not the women's pond, obviously, at literally April on a reasonably sunny day. But actually, the colder the water is, the bigger the, the, bigger the thrill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I swam on New Year's Day. You, wow. you kind of get a bit addicted to that kind of immersion. I think it's just that sense of totally being, you know, in the now. And and I think as you get older, you just realise that actually that's all there is. And, and that's why the endless busyness or the kind of destruction or the kind of, I see so many people who are kind of running so fast that they're just never, they're never anywhere. They just never actually seem to arrive. They're always in a process of kind of, you know, journeying and running from one thing to the next and never actually kind of settled and still and present. Well, this is unfortunately where the conversation ends if you are not a member of our supporters circle, because if you're a member of our supporters circle, Eleanor and I are going to look back at this conversation. And we're also going to think about the three things that Eleanor knows to be true. If you'd like to find out details, go to our website. We've got all the details here. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.